Life is full of personal wins. Whether it's cleaning your house, getting that dream car, or checking off your to-do list, winning at life is a great feeling. And with the State Farm Personal Price Plan, you can keep winning when you create an affordable price just for you by bundling home and auto. So give yourself a round of applause. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. It's 3 o'clock somewhere. Time for a My Mochi ice cream snack. My Mochi ice cream is cool, creamy scoops of premium ice cream wrapped in sweet, pillowy dough. And get this... All of My Mochi's fabulous flavors, like strawberry, mango, double chocolate, and cookies and cream, are only around 80 calories per piece. Talk about a guilt-free, indulgent experience. Each box of My Mochi ice cream has six perfectly portioned, gluten-free mochis that are great for grab-and-go. So feel good while curbing your afternoon cravings, or the midnight munchies, yeah. You know who you are with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you. Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast number 698. This episode. And uh, what do you guys got on the Nerdist Community Corporate? We are about to announce the guests for the second Nerdist Podcast live. And it's at, fucking at nuts. It's going to be amazing. Um, so uh, we're still just trying to get uh, PR approval sign-off on that. So uh, we'll announce that soon. FunComfortableTour.com for tickets to the stand-up show and the podcasts. Uh, I've got a photo blog. Uh, Christian Giordano has sent in. Uh, her and her husband are both big fans of the podcast, and he is a full-time teacher and dad who is finally pursuing becoming a nature photographer. They live up in Tahoe, and he's been saying he's going to do it forever, and is finally doing like like landscape photos and wildlife photos. And he's got his Instagram is Summit Photo G. And then Andy Giordano, G-I-O-R-D-A-N-O dot photoshelter dot com. And he has some really beautiful photos on there. And I think it's really cool that he's got all these things and he's still finding and making the time to like do the things that he's always wanted to do. I think Kyle, you're a delightful son of a bitch. Thank you. Katie, what do you got? Uh, one of the Nerdist family members, Dan Casey, has a book out called 100 Things Avengers Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. It's by Triumph Books. You can find it at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold. And basically, it's your one-stop shop for all things Avengers, starting with the comic book's creation in 1963 and all the way up into Age of Ultron. Way to go, Dan Casey. Yeah. Good job, Dan Casey. Dan Casey is very talented. I, I was at a comic show the other night where there were Dan Casey groupies. They found out I worked for Nerds, and they're like, do you know Dan Casey? Oh. <laughs> it was real weird. Just Maybe a bunch of ladies. tell them everything they need to know about the Avengers. <laughs> Uh, I don't know what that meant. That was a very suggestive <laughs> voice. I did not have anything specific in my mind when I said it, and I don't know what I was saying. Um, this episode was uh, is Brad Meltzer, who is... The fucking coolest. He's so, so oh great. God. Oh, my cool. God. So uh, he, he's, an, he's written for comic books for years. He's an author. Uh, he's a host. Um, uh, Brad Meltzer's Decoded. There was a time where I thought there were three different Brad Meltzers because I was like, no, that's no way it's off the one and guy. He, he was on the first year, I believe. He was on in the first year of the Nerdist podcast. And then we just brought him back. He has a new book called The President's Shadow, that's awesome. which sounds rad. And he has a, a children's book, a series of books called I Am. Which are so cool. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to buy them for that, my little nephew. Yeah. The latest like, one to get me is uh, I Am Lucille Ball. And oh it's just, God. he basically is just highlighting really cool people that children's books don't normally highlight to educate children on positive role models for them. So Brad's a great guy. And this was a really fun conversation that got to very philosophical. 
Brad Meltzer has a good effect in a, on a room. Yeah. Like, people just want to... Plays it to the top of its intelligence. Yeah. He also told him those badass stories ever about Secret Service. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. Holy shit. All right, so we're going to get to that in a second. Here's what is episode number 698 with Brad Meltzer. Now entering Nerdist.com. this Lucille Ball book you Present have? For you. What is this? Our new children's book in three weeks. I mean, so it's a peanut style art. First of all, you're so good. You're fast. So it's to me, it's 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 peanuts mixed with Calvin and Hobbes. Kept peanuts and Calvin and Hobbes, 100. Right. That's what it is. So yeah, we've been doing a line of children's books. We start. I was tired of my daughter looking at reality TV show stars and thinking that's a hero. So we started with I'm Amelia Earhart. And oh we, yeah, there you go. There's there's the Bill Watterson. You see right the there. Bill Watterson, right? Yeah. And the Bill and the end. You know, it's like peanuts mouth, Bill Watterson eyes, like. Chris Eliopoulos, uh, and, and then we did I Am Rosa Parks, Albert Einstein, Jackie Robinson, and in three weeks we do Lucille Ball. Do you know about our At Midnight stage? Is it You don't have her set, do you? It's the original Out of Lucy stage. No crap. So the, it, wait, wait, the, so go, the, keep going. You're see. I'm going to show first, you where it the is. First, the first picture in here. We drew it. Is our stage. Oh, no way. So wait, I'm going to show you. You're going to get to the part where she gets there. Because everyone's like, why are you doing Lucy? I'm like, you know what? I'm tired of my daughter looking at reality TV show stars, but also I want my daughter to have an entertainment hero. Well, Lucy who, is a fucking pioneer. Well, Why saying, wouldn't you want No, no, to? but I said I want... Here, right there. There's your stage. Yeah. I'll, yeah, you can see it on the way out. But I said I want my daughter to have an entertainment hero who isn't just famous for being thin and pretty. Like, Lucy is not just it's okay to be different. She's It's fantastic to be different. And there she is. She like, you know, Desi Lu made Mission Impossible in Star Trek. Like, how much nerd goodness did that give us alone? Well, I mean, the Kardashians are famous just because they're rich and right. noxious. Well, I, say, I always say that's, you know, to my kids, I say that's being fame. That's being famous. Famous is very different than being a hero. Yes. So oh, we this did this whole genius. line of books, and Lucille Ball is out in three weeks. Oh, my God. That's so cool. So you have the early first copy. You, uh, you And I brought are, you one to give a friend. You are also a one. pioneer uh, because we, <laughs> we need more positive role models. <laughs> that is my goal, pal. That is all I do. I mean, obviously. Obviously, you know, most people just want to be rich and famous, and that's fine. But the handful of people who have a soul that are left will. Uh, that's will my, listen, that's my heart and book form that you're, yeah, I mean, that's it. Like, if I was smart, I guess I should just write more thrillers. That's what pays the bills, blah, blah, blah. But um, these books are, my goal is, it's not just doing, like, this will be our sixth one. And I was like, I don't want to do six. I, my goal is to help you build a library for your kids and your nieces and your nephews. So you can say, like, you know, everyone's giving them as baby gifts. I'm like, yeah, give your kid a real hero. Yeah, I mean, you know, what's great about it is that the, the art's great and it reads like a, it, it, it reads like a children's picture book. And that's what it but is. But it's got the story. Uh, and they're funny. Of how she, uh, and you got Three Stooges there. Yeah. Oh, this is so rad. This is so rad. Yeah, she's fun. You, she's uh, awesome. Br- Br- Brad, you are a uh, Nerdist Podcast alum from, I mean, from... From the beginning. Yes. That was it. The OG before, days. Before you had the uh, the entire, you know, 
metropolis that you now uh, you know are lord over. You came over to the E studio when we were in the G four building and E building. Well, we were in, we were in G four, and I remember that at that point in time we were just like we were looking for rooms to record in because we yeah. were just like maybe this room. What about this one? We just yeah. found an empty room and right, sort of crossed no our fingers was. that no one would. It was like a sign in. on the door that said "Do not knock," and yeah. that was like the setup. That was the plan. It was so like, I hope uh, Juliana Rancic or Ryan Seacrest doesn't burst in here and need to have an emergency entertainment meeting. That's right. That's exactly. I mean, it, it, I remember sitting at your desk and just we were still at that point excited that people were sending free stuff, right? <laughs> like we were like, look, here's some free. They sent me free stuff, Brad. And I was like, cool. And you, you like, here's some free stuff. Had you started doing Decoded at that point? I don't even think so. I think it was even before that. This I had just done like, comics. This was probably like four years ago. Oh, it was definitely four years ago. Yeah, I don't think I was even on. I was not on TV then. No, Decoded hadn't even started. So we really launched your... No, I'm kidding. Hey, listen, uh, I, everything I owe, Chris Hardwick, just I owe to you. Of it. Okay, I'm just going to ask 94. for a small tithing. Listen, uh, it's LA, baby. Everyone gets a percentage. <laughs> you know what's been interesting? So, so the LA conversation, just for a sec. Do you live in LA? No, Florida. No, you live in, What part of Florida? Fort Lauderdale. You live in, you live in Fort Lauderdale. You're not... Wait, are you from there? My mom's from Miami. Wait, where? Um, well, she was, I think, originally... My grandfather owned a bowling center... Sort of, I think, sort of near Hialeah. My, my, when I, but my earliest memories in Miami were Miami Lakes. Wait, I, I mean, I used to play against Miami Lakes. Wait, you didn't go to high school in Florida? Though, no, did no, you? no, 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 no. But we out. lived there for, for a minute when I was a kid because oh, my yeah. mom was from there. And my dad was. Is your mom to... still around? Yeah, my mom was in. Ask um, your mom if she knows Jumbo's Restaurant. Jumbo's Restaurant. Because that's my, my father in law's restaurant that was over 59 years, and everyone that's from that area knows Jumbo's, and that's my I'm family's text restaurant. Her right now. Yeah, ask her if she knows Jumbo's Restaurant Do for fried you shrimp. No, Jumbo's. So interesting to hear someone text on a podcast. Right, isn't that exciting? Uh, Look, he's typing. He's typing. In Miami, not Mumbai. Don't fucking autocorrect to <laughs> Mumbai. How is Miami Mumbai? I don't know. I just, you just revealed you can't spell Miami. Autocorrect. Yeah, it's M U N. That's right. Uh, all right. So I've just texted my mom. Do you know Jumbo's Restaurant in Miami? Let's see. We are awaiting the results the on game. that. Yes, my mom was uh, my mom born and raised in Miami. My awesome. Grand, my grandfather and that whole side of the family, you know, lived. Yeah, in no. So Miami. I see you're California crazy, and I raise you Florida crazy. <laughs> you could have just said Florida, right? Um, my uh, and then my dad lived. In the last few years of his life, he primarily lived in Bradenton, which is outside of sure. Tampa. Sure, no, that's like you got this super conservative town with this super liberal part of Florida. Well, you know, the funny part is my, you know, my dad moved to Bradenton in his late sixties, and he was like, "I'm the youngest fucking person here," but uh, uh, it not was it was crazy. It was a crazy town, but it's this idea. You know, on the last Hostful podcast we did, I was telling Jonah about something, and I explained where it was and what streets it was near. And if you're not from Los Angeles, that drives people crazy because they go, oh, it's like the Californian sketch. Why you guys say where things are? And here's my message to anyone. Los Angeles, if you lived here, you would understand, is fucking massive. And it's, there's no centralized part of L.A. That's right. And there's no centralized identity of Los Angeles. It is basically thousands of municipalities strung together by traffic. And each little area has its own identity. So when you say... I went to Fry's. It's it's saying where something is informs its identity. So you would say going to the Fry's in Burbank would be going different to the Fry's in Woodland Hills, which is different than the Fry's in Hermosa. Like it's so saying where things are gives you more information about what they are because of because that's how we, we like geotag our conversations. Yeah, and it's like saying which Harlem Globetrotters do you like best? Then if you say you like Carlina Meadowlark Lemon, you know what part of you're talking. It's just like that. Okay, my mom. Just right back. Do you know Jumbo's Restaurant in Miami? No. Of course. Why? 
this is my family's restaurant. Say my say this, you know Bobby Flam. Do you know Bobby Flam? Yeah, that's the owner. That's my father-in-law. Let me tell you the story of Jumbo's restaurant because okay. it's actually spectacular. You, know, you need to hear this for your mother. So Jumbo's restaurant, uh, like every restaurant in Miami during the '60s, if you were black, you couldn't eat there. You they just went, you had to go around the back. You had to be served everywhere else. My father-in-law takes over the restaurant in the '60s and sees Martin Luther King Jr. and is inspired and says, those are rules for an uncivilized time. They have to change. Hires the first, hires three black employees. 30 of his white employees quit. They're like, I'm not working with anyone who's black. Jumbo's becomes a civil rights landmark that is one of the most famous restaurants. Joe Stone, the only... The only um, Joe Stone Crab, my the only, Well, the only, the only three James Beard Award winners of American Classics in Miami are Joe Stone Crab's Versailles, the first Cuban restaurant, and my family's restaurant, Jumbo's. And so oh, everyone from wow. Miami knows it. And it, it basically, it just closed it this year. It was on the front page of the New York Times because it was, everyone knows this is the restaurant that integrated all of Miami for blacks and whites. That's fantastic. That's my history, pal. Uh, well, your father-in-law is a hero. He is a super duper amazing hero. Like, did it when nobody was doing it. I'm seeing the, uh, the, yeah, the, te- dot, dot, the, dots. the text bubble is processing, processing. Mm-hmm. What all has happened to you since, because you also have the... Oh, doing great. You also have uh, the president in the president's shadow. Yes, we got the new book coming. Yeah, the new book is out this week. So you uh, you yourself have a shit ton of stuff going on. We uh, when when we first met, both of us were so had nothing happening that we were just like again would hang out to play with whatever free shit they sent you. And now uh, we get to have fun. So I feel very blessed. I'm, I'm sure. I'm going to get back do. to that in a second. Yes, I've what you say? A, my dad was friendly with his father. Isidore, my that's my wife's grandfather. I mean, that's like my whole family here. Okay, Bobby is the father-in-law. <laughs> Izzy, I think. Is, she I said, said Isidore, that's it. Yes, Bobby. I, I love that you can like test if see if I'm bullshitting you. Right, no, there it is. <laughs> or you and my mom have had this weird we, decoding Well, scam. I did. I said, wait, here's what we're going to do. First, Miss Hardwick, we're going to go in and we're going to tell <laughs> him. Uh, okay, cool. Uh, Bobby's father-in-law of a guy I'm podcasting right now. Tell her to look up the New York Times story on Bobby Flam. Just put in that. If you put in New York Times Bobby Flam, she's going to have a story that she's going to love to read. Okay. B-O-B-B-Y-F-L-A-M. Yeah. Uh, is it a recent article? Yeah, it's recent. It'll come up. Because um, because Jumbo's just closed, and my wife sent it to the New York Times. Like She was like, oh, let's just see. They report sometimes in Florida. She figured she'd get like, a local mention. And they did a story on it, and then they call us, and then they, come to, and then they interview Bobby. And then they call us back, and they're like, don't tell anyone, but... We think it's going to get good placement. So we think, oh, it's on the front of like the metro section or something. Then they call us back like you can't say anything. It's going to be on the front page of the New York Times. Oh, shit. And then we're worried because my father-in-law is closing this restaurant. We think these are going to be – this is like going to be like a funeral for him. Like it's sad. He's closing the restaurant. He's gotten older and this is going to be the end. It winds up getting picked up by the BBC, by Al Jazeera, by – he's doing international press. The line is out the door and it winds up becoming – a victory parade for this man who helped civil rights in Miami, and my family gets to like watch him have the greatest day of his life. It oh, was that's fantastic! Spectacular. So, so he didn't want to turn the restaurant over to someone else. It was, you know, what the the, the area now is just it's it's a dying area. We got, I got to know what your mom says. This is it. She says she wants to know who uh, who are you podcasting? Um, Brad Meltzer. Um. So basically. We were just, you know, we didn't know what was going to happen. We thought uh, he he knew he couldn't sell it to anyone else because he knew that the neighborhood just can't do it, and he was just not going to fight it anymore. And there was no one in our family. He was, you know, I'm not going to take over the shrimp empire of like. And the best thing is, is that the best fried chicken and fried shrimp in all of Florida, 
and in arguably in the country, it's it's always on the list of the best fried chicken in the country, is made by my white Jewish family. <laughs> like, how fantastic is that? Like, if I, and you could give me like a TV show, and you can give me a you know best selling books, but like my white Jewish family makes the best fried chicken in the whole country on fried shrimp. And do you do, did you pick any of this up? Um, no, but. Uh, I you know, I grew up in the place. I mean, I literally was going there since I'm 15 years old because I married a girl that I went to high school with, and we you know we dated other people and split apart, but we came back together. But I used to eat there free, so no one can eat fried chicken and fried shrimp. Like you should ask, there. you should tell Bobby that my grandfather was a guy named Jim Faseni, and Jim, my grandfather Jim, owned Palm Springs Lanes, which was a bowling center. You gonna make me do this now? I'm gonna make We're you gonna do, it do it now. It. We're gonna do it. I see your text to my grandfather, and I'm gonna write a text my to Mike. Wow, this brings back a flood of memories. Like she, she knows your. I, knew I liked your mom. She knows your family. Okay, so wait, what's your wait, what's your grandfather's name? His name was Jim Facente, F A C E N T E. It should be pronounced Facente, but uh, the Italians wanted to fit in with the Americans. And what they, was the bowling alley? Palm Springs Lanes. It closed in um, late '80s, I think. Okay, I'll ask him. But uh, yeah, no, everyone who's from Miami that time, they know, they know Bobby and they know Jumbos. That's crazy. Crazy, right? They must have known each other as local business owners. Of course, I'm asking them right now. Back when Miami was cool. That's right. <laughs> the I best part is, is that still. the best part is that um, so Jumbos is like it's in the inner city, but the Delano and like all the fancy hotels, people would come in and they want some authentic thing from Miami. So. People, super famous people like from Lenny Kravitz. I remember at one point, um, this guy comes into the restaurant. He was sent by the Delano Concierge, just like, here's the real guy, go to Real Jumbos. And he meets my father in law who comes out to talk with everyone. This is like two, three years ago. And the guy says, Oh, what do you do for a living? And he says, Oh, I make movies. He says, What's your name? He says, Jerry Bruckheimer. He says, Have you made any movies I know? And then my father in law says to him, Well, yeah, my, ne- my, my son in law writes books. Have you made any movies I know? And Bruckheimer, of course, like rattles off his movies. And, and then I get the text that says, Do you know a guy named Jerry Bruckheimer? <laughs> like, which is fantastic. <laughs> so, yes. Bruckheimer, that's not a real name. Which is, uh, so I'm going to ask him right now. You know, Miami, my, I, I, have, um, I have a lot of memories, but they're sort of like snapshots. I mean, growing up in Miami, I mean, for the brief period of time that I was there, and of course we would go back every year and visit my grandfather in the bowling center, but, you know, that that Palm Springs Lanes is where I... My grandfather was one of the first people to put video games in the bowling center. That was a big deal. So, and what he, games did he have? Um, he Well, when the, when, the, when the place was up and running, he had... Uh, Defender, Zaxxon, Gorf, Track and Field. Gorf um, and Zaxxon were – Zaxxon was like a 3D awesome. Zaxxon was like the first like – That was not Asteroids. That was no. like, holy cow, they figured out how to do three-dimensional. Z- yeah, Zaxxon was the one that had that Z-axis. And that oh, you, you had could, that like that stick yeah. shift thing, that, that, that pilot And Gorf thing. was the, basically like the mega game, yeah, which no, ripped off big. all the other of games. Course. But, uh, you know, my grandfather devised a system of, uh, of red quarters, so he would take, you know, like, I don't know, a, a stack of quarters and uh, – and paint, put red nail polish on them, and and they were just a stack of quarters for me. And so when they would, when uh, the guy would come back. and empty the game, like they would go back into the pile. Awesome, I was very spoiled. But uh, yeah, he. Um, I mean, like my. You know what I had Miami. to do to play Donkey Kong Junior. I used to go to the Pathmark in Brooklyn or the Shoprite, whatever it was, and I used to ask ladies if I could, because my family had no money, and I used to go to them and say, "Can I carry your bags to your car?" And then they would tip me a quarter, and then I would go play Duncan Kong Jr. and try and you know memorize whatever the pattern was, and then I'd go back and help another lady carry her bags, and like I, I was like pellet by pellet. That's how I got quarters to beat Duncan Kong. So Jr. So it's sort of like the um, 
It, it, it was sort of like the plot of Loverboy, but instead of sex, you were carrying their groceries. That was me. You I were, was working for the weekend. <laughs> you were a you were a grocery gigolo. I, I really, I mean, I and, and notice how I said women. <laughs> I was like, there was no men that I was. I was like, hello, ma'am. Well, um, you know, Would a you little, like to feed my habits. Little Donkey Kong Junior history. My father's bowling center in Memphis was the first, because uh, obviously I, as a video game fanatic. Had a re- I had a relationship with the video game company that would bring the cabinets in naturally, and they gave us. We were the first establishment in the South, or so we were told, to get the Donkey Kong Junior machine. That was a big deal. And we had, you know, my dad's place had uh, it was twice as big as my grandfather's place, and you know, we had. That's where I played Tron and Robotron. Dude, and, I, uh, Robotron. I mean, give me two handles. That blew my mind. Right, that was it. Robotron and even Tron also. Although. You, the thing about Tron was you just wanted to play the racing part, right? Like that was it. I was just like, I just want to freaking play the racing part. Yeah, that the, was the it. grid bug part where you're yeah, trying to run no. into the tower. Was that a, was, was it. a huge pain in the ass, and the tanks. It, but and you and it was, you know, the, those games at that time were like, here's the same four levels over and over again, but harder each time. That's all they did. But uh, Donkey Kong Junior. Uh, I loved, and uh, I still remember the music to it. It's still. It still it haunts, haunts you. Haunts yeah. my dreams. So my so my thing with video games when we first moved to Florida, there was a big video game. It wasn't. I can't even say it was an arcade. It was. It was truly like a warehouse that it was like a massive arcade. Not an arcade that you know an arcade in the mall or anywhere else would have whatever twenty five thirty games. This was one that had two hundred. Like it was. It was a, a place that was probably like in the Karate Kid, like that that place they have, but golf like and four stuff. of them. Yeah, like yeah, exactly golf and stuff. But it had like four. It was a castle. They called it. I think it was like something castle. I forget what it was in Florida. And they had that, remember that game, they still have now, where you put the coin in and then the coin drops and has to hit other coins to make it come down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, they all, and you get more coins. Yeah. So one of the things we figured out, I don't even know how, was we figured out, one, how to take a paperclip and rig the game and, and get more things. Because <laughs> we can unbend the paperclip. I can still do it. You make it like a question mark. Right. And then you can pull the little thing down. You mm-hmm. slide it up the coins. That's called stealing. But and yeah. that's thievery. <laughs> yeah. But here's, this is actually, I'm going to explain to you robbery. Okay, so now, <laughs> here's what happens. So now, in that game where you put the coins on, you, we, what we do is we would lift up the entire thing. It would take two of us because we were just little and 13, and we would lift it up, and there was no alarm on one of them. All the rest, it, an alarm would sound if you, it, if you pushed it because they don't want you pushing the thing to make more coins rain down. But one of them had a broken alarm, and we figured out which one it was. So we'd pick it up, we'd look around, and then we would drop it. And, then it would, and this uh, thing would hit, and you would get like $10 worth of coins. Mm-hmm. And we could stay there for like 19 hours straight. Cause we, and I used to keep – I was so obsessed with video games. On a notepad like that, but on a true legal pad, I kept a list of every video game I played because I was planned to have the record for playing the most video games of anyone in the whole world. Oh, my God. And I used to go at just this one place, lift it up, feed my habit, and keep going. Well, I think the joke was on you because all that money ended up going back into their establishment. I, I, I did. So uh, I, think I was fully knew. knowing. The smarter thing would have been, I'm going to take their money and leave. Right. Instead, I was like, ha-ha, I'm going to take your money on and give it back to these people against. that I stole it from. You know, there was a... Uh, there was a great cheat in Galaga where I can't remember which level it was, but I think maybe after the second stage, if you uh, if you kill everything but but leave one, I remember one you're, you're, B, you're saying something I remember. If you leave one, what if you leave one B this. left, and then you just let him keep falling and falling and falling. At a certain point, he stops firing missiles at you, 
And when he stops firing missiles at you, when you're sure after a couple screens he's not firing missiles anymore, you shoot him, and then nothing fires missiles at you for the rest of the game. I remember. I don't. I, I, it sounds familiar. The one that obviously took my whole life was was playing Adventure on Atari. Oh, that oh was my the god! One. Of course. I mean, there was no better cheat than than finding you know that invisible you know the invisible the, thing the, to, the go invisible the castle, to go yeah. into the castle yeah. and, and and find you know the the weirdly written silver glittering letters. And I remember finding that and being like. No one in the universe now knows what I know sitting at this Atari. Like, I remember just, because there was no one to tell, there was no internet, there was no, you couldn't even get the cheats. And I was explaining to my son the other day, because he, you know, listen, we, we play PlayStation, that's what he loves. But I was like, you understand that when we get to a hard level, you go on the internet and you find out how to do it, and that's it. I'm like, I freaking played Zelda. I remember saying one weekend, one Christmas break, I spent the entire Christmas break cracking Zelda. And the only thing worse than spending your entire time doing that is is your friend who sits next to you and watches you do that, right? Like that's the only lower form of entertainment is like is like the guy who's riding shotgun on you solving Zelda for a week of time. So I, trust me, I, I I love that. For me, for the other twenty six hundred game that I uh, well besides Pitfall, but um, the, Superman, Superman, I, I have the I mean I really felt like I had the world record, and, and because. Uh, you figure out. I could still do. By the way, I could still do it. I can't remember. Oh, I, I remember, remember what all the. I can't remember what all the screen. Oh, I remember going back forth, and then you went back forth again, and I could do it. In, I think it was like nineteen or twenty nine. I forget what it was seconds. Yeah, yeah. I remember I, it because it would give you the number, and I'd be like, I did this in nineteen seconds. There's no one on this planet that's beating me at Superman. I don't know if I got down to nineteen seconds, but I think I. It was uh, like nineteen or twenty nine. It was I, some I, nine. I, th- I think I was around thirty seconds yeah. because. Once you figured out what the screen map was, That's you it. catch that guy, catch that of guy, course, catch that guy. right. Fly. You got Dagley up this, yeah. this way. Yep. And then Lex Luthor and then and the helicopter. And then, but you could take a picture. If you took a picture of the screen, you could send it in to – was that an Activision game? Uh, I think – you know what? I'm trying to remember. It, 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 I don't know if it was an Activision game. But Pitfall the, was the Activision. Whoever, I don't know if it was Activision. Whoever maybe made it was it. an Activision. Might I don't have think been Activision. it was Atari. But, um, but you could send it in to them and, and then you know, like, they had those video game magazines. And oh, I had those. Oh, please. I had a subscription. your – with your with your windscreen, um, but uh, really, that, who mean, was like, the winner there? That was, and a lot of that, <laughs> a lot of that came from my grandfather Jim, who had, you know, he was a he was a technophile, and so he had a laserdisc player in 1979. Yeah, if you know, that was the measure. If you had a laserdisc player, like you had stuff that no one else had. He also had Betamax. He also yeah. had um, eight tracks. He had all. He had everything. He had a. He had an amazing hi-fi system. He I remember had, Mark Taustein had a had a laserdisc disc system, and I remember that in 1977, that summer of Star Wars, his father built him for this camp uh, talent show an R2-D2 that he got into. His dad was really handy, and he got physically into it, and then had and a died. thing came up. And I remember just being like, oh my gosh, he has an R2-D2. <laughs> like, it was just the most mind-blowing. Like, again, before the toys were even out, before there was anything, Mark Taustin had this thing. It was the greatest. Fucking Mark Taustin. Mark Taustin again? haunts me. Again, he has it every time. But he, and, and laser discs. But you know what he also gave me was was Garfield comic books. I remember he was the first guy who had Garfield. Remember when the little books, would, the little long oh, books? Oh, yeah. And he was the first one who had those, and he would give them to me, and he was my pusher of Garfield comics. I mean, what else, you know, basically uh, the, the, those little comic books were essentially, you know, because the 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 bathroom was my library. So I read more comic books. I read more Farsides on the toilet. Oh, yeah. Than, uh 
and Calvin and Hobbes. And uh, but the Listen, um, I love Calvin so much. I'm doing books like that. Right? <laughs> I mean, that's how much it made me crazy. But my grandfather also he didn't just have an Atari 2600. He also had an Intellivision and a ColecoVision. Like he had yeah, all these no. See, if you, to me, if you had Atari, then you had you skipped Intellivision and then you got Coleco. Like I had a Coleco, right? But if you had Intellivision, because you were too late to get Atari, and that meant your parents didn't love you as much. In my <laughs> eyes. Like that meant that, like I'm not. And I remember my. I, I'll never forget. What the, that that year, it, you know, it was Christmas, Hanukkah presents, and all I wanted was Atari. That was all I wanted. That was it. All I wanted was Atari. And my parents, who um, they went to the Toys R Us, and they came back, and they said, we, they were sold out. We're sorry. There's no Atari. And I was crushed. And I was just like, what do you mean there's no Atari? And they're like, we went to three different stores. No Atari. And they said, we got you this. I hope you like it. And they handed me this box. And I was like, what is this piece of crap? And I opened it up, and it was an Atari. <laughs> and I lost my mind. And it was the greatest thing ever. And I just recently did that to my daughter and I did it to my son. I constantly, like, whatever it is, that thing that they're like, please, dad, like, we just did it with a. a Let me ask you a question, though, because yeah. this, this, this does strike an interesting moral dilemma, which is yeah. if your kid all of a sudden becomes an unrecognizably enraged asshole because they didn't get the thing they wanted, <laughs> is there a threshold where you're like, well, now you're not getting it because your behavior is unforgivable. Uh, I don't know. I'm pretty, pretty. I'm pretty happy with just keeping my kids in a Skinner box and trying to control <laughs> their behavior with the pellets that I make them, you know, like hit the hit the line for. <laughs> so I, I'm, I make peace with that. I'm fine with it. I feel like that's what my dad did with me. I'm like, that's okay. It's so funny now that our that our uh, that, that the the Gen Xers now are in the. In my day, I mean, All like, right, I, you know, like I, you know, I'm, I'm, I was playing Witcher three over the weekend. Like, I mean, I can't even, you know, when, like, still, even when video games first started, you, your imagination still had to fill in some of the something. Pieces oh, because, yeah. like you said, adventure, which is. You know, well, for you were a pop, dot. Pop. They would say on the back of an adventure, it would say you are a warrior with a sword, and dragons will get you. And then you put it on, and you were a dot. Yeah, you were a yellow dot, and you said, "There I am. I'm a warrior." You know, <laughs> like and you just imagine well, well, it com- all coming out of Pong. Adventure was that moved, Adventure right. was our generation's version of a sandbox oh, game. Oh yeah. <laughs> Where you like you can move it off oh, a game. Oh yeah. Board. I just spoke to Scott Goldstein who we bought Pong for for his birthday and I just found him he found me on Facebook and was like, "Man, you bought me Pong." And I was like, "Oh, I did buy you Pong." And like, "That's great. I don't care about it. That's good." God. But yeah, I do play like right now, of course. Listen, want to sound like real old men. I go my son's playing now and I walk in I'm like, "Oh, what game are you watching?" cuz I think he's watching a real basketball game and he's playing, you know, and he's playing NBA, you know, whatever it is, 2015. And I'm like, that's, that's, you're playing that? Like, in my day, we were a dot. Yeah. <laughs> until, uh, until Dragon's Lair and Space Ace came along. But the thing about Dragon's Lair and Space Ace, and, and even then, of course, the Don Bluth animation so great. lost my mind. But it was still, even then, I remember being like, I'm not really controlling it. I'm just moving a direction, and well, then and it w- plays once you a new figure one. out the patterns, the it's pat- done. And so to me, like I love that, but I never really fell for it in the way that I fell for anything else because I didn't feel like I had real control. I couldn't really make him run wherever I wanted. I just had to know if I go this way, I'm going down the well and I die. This, uh, this, uh, you can file this in a way uh, along with the other stories of uh, reasons why Chris Hardwick was not popular in grade school. Please, as yeah. opposed to my stories, I'm telling you how cool I was. You know, stealing quarters like this was my entire. <laughs> it w- we had to give speeches in sixth grade. About like we had to give you know a speech. It was for a speech class about you know you had to sure. give a speech about it's something you're an expert on, and my speech was a demonstration on how to beat Dragon's Lair, and so uh, 
<laughs> I have no problem with that. No one else was interested in that. It turns out sixth grade girls are not interested in beating Dragon's Lair. So when I'm in 12th grade and you're supposed to be interested in girls and that, you know, you really forget about sixth grade, you really want girls. My speech and debate final was about why Superman is the greatest superhero. <laughs> and I'm like, that's fine. Like in sixth grade, I give you that. I'm literally in 12. I'm 18 years old at this point, And I'm yes, still Yes, but doing you it. went on to write comic books. No, and, and so listen, I, I find, again, there's nothing nerdy about loving what you love. That's it. I'm okay with it. Yeah, I, I'm really glad that, uh, you know, I'm really glad that something didn't deter me from being into the things that I, I mean, you know, I, 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 I I I would try to hide it every once in a while because it was a source of great it was a source of gr- of sadness to me because in a pre-internet world you just couldn't really connect with any more than like 3 people. Right, you, I was the only kid in my school that read comics and then there were there were maybe like two other kids that I can remember Scott Kohler who would lift the machine with me and another and one other kid who liked video games. And to find those kids it was a lifeline, right? To find someone else who was like you. And I remember going even to camp and finding that one kid who also liked comics. And I was like, oh, there's two of us? Like, that was a miracle. You know what I – what's what's kind of interesting now is how when we were growing up, if if someone used the word nerd, it was in a derogatory way. Sure. And now what's funny is how it's flipped and how people are saying, you're not a real nerd. Right, like, they're right, using right. it – like, they're using the reverse as a way to demean you. Of course. And – and it bo- it bothers me when people say that to me. It's like you don't fucking know me. But at the same time, it also kind of weirdly satisfies me because now the reverse is being used to shame people. And I think that's there's something kind of cool right about that. But the you know, but it begs the question, right? The the greatest question that we can well maybe there are better questions, but I'll ask it is that when you how do love we cure cancer? Right, I was gonna, oh, no, no, wait, no, I'm no, sorry. Cancer, you're I'm going to talk is, about this okay, one, right? Okay, I was okay. just going to say I I, I, I hyperbole myself to death, but <laughs> the but I well really when when your culture is based on being an outsider and no one liking what you like, when everyone likes what you like, does it take away from your culture? Um, it it depends. I'll tell you my my response to this is. Uh, it depends on why you like those things. Well some, said. Some Very people, well said. That's right. If some people are more obsessed with being fringe, then it's going to bother them. Of course. If you like something because it possesses qualities that you identify with, then it doesn't matter. Because right. I don't care. You know, fucking great that Comic-Con's 150,000 people. And great, you know, I don't care that there's fringe people there who may not know every Doctor Who episode. You know, like, if if it supports the culture and it makes people more comfortable about like liking what they like and being able to be public about that i'm a big supporter of it because i was always ashamed growing up because it was not it was you know you we were socially ostracized and so now i feel like yeah great strength in numbers fantastic yeah you know? see the for me i actually was never ashamed by it. maybe i just was like not as, as socially aware as you were when you were little but i never had shame in it i just knew that that was my thing like i remember going and we were on a camp walk and it was a two-mile camp walk, um, and, and the Jews, we don't walk more than a mile without complaining, right? <laughs> so it was a two-mile. It was too far. It was really hot. It was a summer. And basically, uh, I remember going to—we stopped at a 7-Eleven, and my parents had given me a dollar. Everyone got a dollar to kind of, like, get a drink. And I remember going into the 7-Eleven, and there was a spinner rack— and I, I saw the Yoo-Hoo, and I was like, oh, I, w- I need a Yoo-Hoo. I'm dying. I'm really thirsty. And then I saw the spinner rack, and it had a Justice League of America at the end of a of a double-part story where the Justice League and the Justice Society fight the Secret Society of supervillains. And I remember going, I could have that Yoo-Hoo, 
or I can have that comic. And I'm dying of thirst here. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to read that comic. And I'm going to drink the backwash of every person's here, you know, like of their you who. But like to me, everyone there knew that when everyone came out with soda, I was the guy walking out with a comic and I didn't care. Everyone knew that's the thing that Brad's going to go do. Well, I, I think you were, you were fortunate because uh, for whatever reason, there were there were a lot of bullies in my school. I mean, like a lot of, you know. Wait, where are you? Wait, I forget where you Memphis. Where you I went to oh, Memphis. Right. Oh, Memphis. yeah. Memphis, I, you're screwed. I went yeah. to a very small. I was right. I was in Brooklyn where, like. Oh, okay. You know, like, well, you had to defend yourself and you had to get in one fight because you had to prove you could survive. But once you get into one fight and if you. Then I was left alone. No, our school was very small. There were only a few hundred students there and it was K through 12. So it was very small. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and, uh, and so it, th- there was a lot of merciless public shaming yeah, because. Sure, you're different. You know, well, we had one room that had um, it was the computer lab. So there were like we were fortunate enough that even in the mid '80s we had a bank of Apple IIe computers, and uh, it was also the chess club, and it was also the math club, and it was also where we played D and D, and it was all, and so it was uh, it, it we were easily identifiable in a small grouping of people, and to be into nerdy shit in the South yeah, in, no, no, in, at that time that. it right. was it was a lot of and not being sport like I had to play. I had to play sports in seventh and eighth grade. I had to play sports with the fifth and sixth graders, and so that sort of—I oh, yeah, didn't even play sports. I remember my dad made me play little league, and one year, and and I found that actually when he, when my mom died, I know I played one year, but I never knew. I knew I didn't like it, but I just thought I quit. And when my mom died, my dad said to me, "It was your mother who basically came and was like, Stewie, leave him alone." And she knew, like she protected me from that. She was like, "He's that's not his thing. He's never going to do that." And my dad always would have rather been buying like baseball cards. Like I think when he got me, my dad was like a a big kind of like Brooklyn mobster type. Like he'd be like, "Hey, how you doing? How you doing? How you doing?" Like he was just that's who he was. And I think when he got me, like he's like, "Oh, I I got the kid who likes to read. Oh man, I got the gay one." You know, like he just had right. no idea what to make of me. Like and but to his credit, when he would have been rather be buying baseball cards. He he was he used to work as a manager of a greeting card store in Penn Station, and there was a little bookstore there where you can grab like you know whatever a couple books for five dollars. But he would always buy me comics, Aww. and I love that you know he that was the one thing he he knew I he would have rather been doing something else, but he would feed my little habit. I think that's probably the best thing you can do as a parent. I would imagine is being tuned in enough to your kid to go hey. I don't understand what this thing is that you're into, but I know you like it. And, and that's how my it. parents were with me. They that's knew right. I loved comedy, so they bought me every comedy album. They knew I loved video games, so they, you know, like they 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 fed that habit. And uh, and I feel like that's the I feel like recognizing an aptitude or or a desire for something in your kid and helping to foster that is is the best thing that you can do, even if you don't get it. Right. So now tell me what you do in this. So I'm on I'm on book tour right now at the at the second stop in Washington D.C. I, ha- I actually brought my kids with me just because we used to live in Washington. We were going to go see family friends. So I'm at the book signing. I'm, you know, there's a nice line waiting, and my son walks up, my youngest son, and he's got all this money and change. And I'm like, where'd you get all the money? And he says, oh, from these people. Uh-oh. And I turn around, and basically the woman says, oh, yeah, he's charging us uh, to draw pictures for him because he wants to save up for the Lego Death Star. <laughs> and now I'm like, you can't charge our readers. But then I'm like— but that's actually brilliant. Like, he's giving these and providing I said, a he's service. Giving a service, right? And I said to him, and, and I said, I, I have to promote that. Like that's where I came down to me. I'm like, you know what? I know he's bilking the readers and playing on their like sympathy because he's cute and adorable. And the Lego Death Star is something worthy of buying. But I'm like, 
have, you know, and you, you see, my wife was like, you can't do that. You got to wait. He came up with a resourceful way to, I was to, like, to go pay, to it, man. He didn't just ask you for the money. Right. He could have said, give me the money. And we purposely, listen, I can buy him the Lego Death Star, but I want him to have something that he knows is the Atari but of his that age. that desire forces him to discover that he likes to draw. Awesome. Right. And, and he's drawing. Him. Right. That's what I feel. I'm like, keep drawing, man. Do whatever you want. And so he sits there. And I was like, that's exactly where I netted out. I was like, you know what? Although the next night I said, so we're now we're in. Uh, we it's, were not like, in it's not like his three card Monty. Right, right, right. Like, keep your eyes, kids. Keep your eyes. And so now, the next night, I say, "How about this, though? How about we do drawings for people, but you do it out of kindness?" And he literally stands up. I did it during the Q and A as I'm telling the story, and he goes, "I'll think about it." <laughs> I was like, that, "I'm like respect for that." How old too. is he? Seven. 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 You know, I was just thinking of another point. But he's going to be an agent, clearly, because the kid is just working the the angles. He know he gets you know, it. No, totally he's, gets it. He's 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 a little he's a little grifty. Oh yeah, no. As long as he gets that Lego Death Star. I was I was thinking about your earlier question, and it it's starting to chew away at me even more, and I'm starting to get annoyed. It's with a question that someone asked me at Comic Con. That question I asked you about about does would it, you like? Yep. Would you like it if? And here's what I would say. It, and I will tell you. That was 10 years ago, and that question still, I, I come up with a new answer every day for that well, question. Well, because people, uh, the people who complain about it would argue, people who would say, well, everyone likes it now, so it's not cool anymore. Those people would argue that the fringe nerd, like the, the people that are just coming in and experimenting with it are posers. Oh, well, you're that's just trying they say, to be- Right, they don't not like it anymore. They're mad that someone likes it. It's like when your parents like the band that you like. Right. When your parent, when mom says, oh, I love your new band, you're like, that's not my favorite band But anymore. I would argue that those people that don't like it anymore because it's gotten popular are the actual posers because they are the ones- Oh, that's clear, for that, sure. Because they the, they're, they're just liking it because just of, liking of its it, popularity yeah. factor. But I will, say, I will say this, too. It's sort of like, you did just make the point of- you know, your parents liking something. And in this, especially in this sphere of pop culture, people do attach their identities to things. And so when they see people they don't like, they feel like, well, I don't want to have anything in common with you. So fuck this. But that to me says, well, then you don't really like the thing for what right, it is. Of course. If someone, if someone being you're there liking affects it, your you're liking life, it right. as a means to an end, not right. because you enjoy it. Well, the question to me is if no one were watching, would you still do it? Right. That's the question, right? Like, what would you do if no one knows, no one's like, and that's what you love. It, like, when, when nothing else around you could choose one thing, what do you choose? And for me, it's always been the same stuff. Like, because again, you know, think about it. When I was, when I first started writing novels, um, the only person who was doing comics was Kevin Smith and then me. Like, I mean, it was the two of us, and I was just talking about it, and I said, I said, you know, you were the first guy on the beach, and I was the guy behind you. But like, I remember all the novelists at the time said to me, why are you slumming in comics? And I was like, slumming? This is, oh, I love comedy. Like, I, I, this is the best. And then now, of course, 10 years later, they're all like, they come to me because they say, hey, can you introduce me to DC and Marvel? And I'm like, I'm the, I'm the drug dealer for, you know, to like make the introduction. But I love the fact, you know, that you can see it's just pure. Like those people who were there in the beginning, they weren't, there was no money, there was no fame. It wasn't cool. And it was actually like, potentially people thought bad for my career. And I was like, I don't care. I'm doing it. I love this thing. Yeah. And that's ultimately when you know, if you're doing the right thing That's or it. not. I'm like, and the same thing with like even the kids' books. I'm like, I'm, if I was smart, I shouldn't be doing them, but I love them. This is my, I get my history nerd on. Like I can get that going. No, it's never, it's never a bad idea to do things that are meaningful to you. That's always the smartest idea because people can tell, you know, when you, so this Lucille Ball book, people know that the person who made this being you really gives a shit about it right because who else would ever it, let's put it this way 
She's been around for like, uh, it was a hundredth anniversary of her birth. There is no kid's book for Lucy. There's none. And, and not because I was like, oh, I found a hole in the market. They, I found that out because the publisher was like, you do realize when they were doing the marketing, there isn't one. I'm like, I don't know. I just thought there must have been a lot. People can tell that you care about this. I love it. You, it's you very can, clear. So yep. I think, you know, as much as we try to hammer the point home to people, like, just do the stuff that you, it makes you happy. You know, it, it really is. It's, you can never, I feel like you can mostly, well, unless you're like a murder enthusiast, you can mostly never go wrong. But maybe they can go really right if they do something. Really, you know. <laughs> Dexter hunted other murderers. Right. Tell it. I was going to say. Tell that to, to Jeff Lindsay. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Listen. I, there's no question. And 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 I think you know one of the things that people ask me is I sometimes get a question and, and I, I this is one that actually someone asked me. They said, "Dear Brad, like I have two books I want to write, and one of them is going to be a great Hollywood thriller, and I know it's going to like I can sell it to the movie rights, and and I know it's a high concept, and I can pitch it great, and it's got a you know it's going to make a million dollars as a great movie, and the other one, I'm obsessed with the Druids, and I love the Druids, and I know it's this obscure kind of arcane thing, but I just love the Druids. I don't know if anyone's going to buy something from the you Druids. You got to write about the Druids, and I said, well, which book should I write? And of course, I wrote, I'm like, you must write the book about the Druids. Do yeah. not for one second because the X factor on everything you create is whether the writer loves what they're doing. Sure. And that's it. Like when you read something that you go on page one or when you see a movie that you see in the first minutes, you're just like, when it grabs you by your esophagus and you just are like, oh my gosh, we're on this train ride and the bullet train's moving, it's because that writer, creator, whatever it is you're doing, you know, even video game designer, loves it and can't wait to let that train leave the station. And to me, I'm like, dude, I can't wait to read your Druid's book. It's going to be awesome because you love this mad, crazy-ass thing that no one else knows about. Because people are going to... People can sense when something is writing from... Someone's writing from an authentic place and you're getting information because that person really understands and they really understand because they really give a shit about it. Um, and, that, and listen, for me, for the for the the novel, for The President's Shadow, I mean, I so I, you know, listen, it opens up with, a, with the first ladies in the Rose Garden. She... And it's all fiction, obviously. It's a thriller, but she, you know, every first lady I've ever met, they all want just normalcy. That's it. They just want their life back. How many first you know? ladies have you met? Uh, two. Really? Yeah. I have to tell you, have to tell you the story. This is a good story. Okay. Okay, so here's a story. So, and then we'll get back to President Yeah, Shadow. yeah. So basically, years ago, uh, I got letters from Bill Clinton that had said that they, you know, he had written me a letter. I always thought it was from someone who, a friend who worked there that was like throwing me a bone. But then one day, I, I opened my mail, and it's a letter from uh, George H.W. Bush. And my first thought is this is clearly fake because I used to be an intern for the Senate Judiciary Committee and I used to always use the pen signing machine and write to my friends and tell them they were being deported. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and like, and I will tell you, like in Miami, that works too. Like that totally works in Miami, right? Like, and so basically I was like, this is clearly a friend playing a prank on me. This is not from, and I, and in fact, call the president's office. I look up the number and found president Bush's office. And I'm like, um, some intern there like wants to get a free book. I just want to make sure. And they're like, Oh, you got the president's letter. I'm like, wow, he's really bored. Like, right. I mean, the president's right. Like you're a past president. You're. And so I said to him, can I come see what your life is like? Cause I, I mean, imagine Chris, if someone told you that you peaked, that everything you're going to do tomorrow from this moment on, is downhill from everything you've done. And that's what it is when you leave the White House, right? You peak. You, you, every day of your life will be less exciting than these four to eight years that you just lived. And I was fascinated as a character for that. I was like, that's crazy, right? You know, in fact, the first thing you do when you leave the White House is they ask you to plan your own funeral, oh. which is just devastating, right? That's like the perfect metaphor. And so I said, can I see what your life is like? And he said, why don't you come to Houston, Texas for the week? And I was like, 
okay, I'll come there. In fact, in 10 days ago, I got invited to Barbara Bush's 90th birthday party. Wow. And so I'm like, and they said, and it's a, it's a bipartisan thing. It was raising money for literacy. They invite Democrats, Republicans, where everyone goes. And uh, and they say to me, they're like, you know, Barbara Bush, they, they, you know, her and her staff picked out four authors to come entertain. And I was like, wow, who'd you get? And they're like, dummy, it's you. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'll be there. And and at one point, we're standing, and it's me, and we're in two little rooms that are basically the size of the room we're in right now, two of them. And it's Barbara Bush, George Bush, Laura Bush and W, Jeb Bush, my wife and I. My wife looks at me, she's like, at what point did your life become Forrest Gump? You know, like, <laughs> and you can't take the moment seriously, right? It's like obviously not – like, and, and some Your father-in-law of, does have a shrimp company. He do, and, and fried chicken. Let's yeah. not forget to sell fried chicken. But at one point, um, someone turns around and smashes into my wife accidentally because it's just close quarters and you're in this small house. And my wife whips around because she's like, who just hit me? And she's face-to-face with W. And I'm like – this is going to be the greatest fight of all time. Like, this is going to be like Jimmy Snuka and Hogan. Like, you know, this is going to fight versus the Iron Sheik. Like, and, uh, but obviously, that's what I put into my books. But why do I get to do it is like, because I love the White House. I'm obsessed with it. So when I, when I do the start of the president's shadow and, and you're sitting there and the first lady's in the White House and she puts her hands into the dirt and she smells the mulch and out of the dirt she pulls a severed arm. Like, okay, that's fine. I can make it up. But I go to the Secret Service who love what they do, and I'm like, what would you do? Here's fiction, and they'll help me because they love fiction. They, they're sick and tired of seeing movies that have it wrong, and the guy says to me, the first thing I do is I would redecorate a room. I'm like, what does that even mean? He's like, I redecorate a room at the White House. I put paint on the one wall. I take wallpaper off another. Now I can move the first family out of the White House, get them across the street for three days, and now I can investigate, and no one will know what I'm doing, and the press won't know what I'm up to. And I'm like, that sounds like you've done that before, you know? And he, <laughs> no, no, no. We're just no, speaking just hypothetically. hypothetically. What are you talking about? But he said to me, he's like, think of it. He's like, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Obama have redecorated rooms in the White House. You won't believe what's been done here in the name of home renovation. And I'm like, now listen, obviously I love that because it helps me with the book, but that's my thing that I'm so passionate about that I'm like, I, I'm going to figure out how to make this work in a book because that's the coolest thing I've heard like this month. And, and I will make the whole book work around that nerdy thing that I don't know if anyone else is going to think is cool, but to me is, is just the best. And it's, it's politics. Like there's nothing less, you know, that's more dry than that. So was this time, this time where George W. Bush physically assaulted your wife was this when you got invited to houston no this was actually like 10 days ago i oh, was just there was this was literally ago. just 10 days ago So what happened when you got invited when to i houston? got invited to houston that was actually like a research trip and i spent nearly a week in houston with the bushes the best part was this is i never tell the story so but um so i go and i don't even think the secret service is realizing why i'm there like because they're just like who's this like pasty have you white talked guy? to the president at this point oh yeah you no know, when i met president bush he spent the first 10 minutes trying to convince my wife that he invented the phrase, you to man. <laughs> that's a quality this is A-plus George Bush joke. Sr.? George Bush Sr., like the one who's like 93. I'm like, that's a quality joke. My wife is like, you know, Brad, he invented you to man. I'm like, no, he didn't. He's lying to you. Like, he's lying to your face. But I'm like, you got to respect the joke, right? I respect a good joke anywhere. And so I, I, I sit with him. He invites me into the house. And at one point... We're watching TV. I'm just watching TV just to see what he's watching because I'm like, what is a president who's left the White House? What does he watch? And at that point in time, it was wild because he, his son was president at the time, and he, he hates the news. Why? Because his kid is getting beat up on it every day. Like, you think you were bullied? Like, his kid's getting bullied on national television in every newspaper on the front page every day. And you're like, wow. Like, no matter what you think, no matter what your politics are, like, if someone's beating up your boy— 
that sucks. Yeah. Like, you can't watch. So I'm watching, like, he likes sports. He likes, you know, he likes going to Blockbuster when Blockbuster was around and, like, checking out movies. And, he, and I'm like, and it's just a wild experience. But at one point he says, you know, I think I'm going to say goodbye and, like, thanks for a great day. And he's like, you know, we're going to dinner. Get in the car. So I jump into the black Suburban. And usually, again, they drive alone. And I go in the staff car is what you're supposed to do. And you go in a different car. And he goes, just get in the car. So you don't say no when the president says get in the car. So I jump in the black Suburban. And I jump in the way, way back. It's like a three-row seat thing. And there's two Secret Service agents in the front seat. There's George and Barbara Bush in the middle seat. And I'm in the back, like, knees to my chest, like, <laughs> hi, guys, here I am. And I'm like, and the Secret Service is looking at me like, who is this guy? And how do he, why is he here? And it's just because, you know, no one's going to stop when the president says something. But, yeah, but no, Did you no, have a crazy. morbid sense of just to make a bad joke? Oh, like, no, not even morbid sense. Like, all I'm going to shoot you. I'm kidding, you, I'm kidding. All you think is, like, how much damage can I do? Because you're just like, you've never been this close, right? Like, I mean, you, all you think is like, not not in like that you ever want to hurt anyone, but you just think of like, what am I going to mess up here because well, I'm your so brain, close? Well, your brain goes to those places of like, course, you yeah. better not make that joke. Or you, but it's the same thing that I, it's the same thing that I have being afraid of heights where I go, what if I jump? You know what I mean? It's right. that it's that horrible, what if the worst case scenario happens? All you think is, what if I do the wrong thing here? Like, what if I trip and accidentally knock into him? Like, that's all I'm thinking is like, don't knock him over. Don't you know? Don't trip. Don't fall. Because when you meet a president, and, and maybe I don't know, maybe it's like meeting like your favorite movie star. But in that moment, you have a story to tell the rest of your life, right? Because all of time slows, and whatever the moment is happening, even if it's just a hello, or like even you know, watching Mark Maron do with the Obama thing, like right, like Obama comes in and he says to Mark Maron, like, "Hey, man, you know, you got a lot of pictures of yourself on the wall. <laughs> I will promise you one thing." That will haunt Mark Maron forever. <laughs> I pro- I don't know Mark. I don't know anything about that. Will haunt when the president of the United States says you got too many pictures of yourself on your wall. You you have to be haunted forever. I can tell you everything a president's ever said to me because you just don't forget it. And like it's the president, man. I don't care if you like him, don't like him, respect him, voted for him or not. It's awesome. Did being friends. With him, affect- friends, you know, friends, because you know, we have a, a a best friend's charm that we broke in half. You have a best friend's I charm that you broke in half, he and he stands. has the other side. Yeah, stands, yeah. yeah. Did did it affect your politics at all? Did it? No, did, okay. no, no. My thing, I no. To me, it's not a, like when I do my research, it's solely about like making my book. To, you know, getting the details I want. But I will say what I did learn. I ne- you know what? This is, this is actually a good question. This is a perfect thing for this, for especially on the creative side. I could never write a president. I never. I wrote a book called The First Council, where the plot of the book was about a, a first daughter, the president's daughter, who goes out for a wild night on the town and gets into trouble. The president never has, I think, a line of dialogue in the whole book. It's set in the White House. Her dad's the president, but I, I was like, I couldn't write it because— it was like a cliche. It was like writing a doctor and saying, stat, you know, I need something stat. Like, right. it, all I could see was like, yes, sir, no, sir, right away, sir. And it just wasn't a real character. It wasn't until I met a president, um, and I've met, you know, I've literally met at this point everyone since Bush. So I've met both Bushes and Clinton and Obama, but it's not until I met them that I was like, oh, you're a human being. Like, oh, you make jokes and you're worried about the same dumb crap we are. And, and yes, you can let it roll off better and you can hide it better and you can be in control better. But like, now I got it. Like what every president is really good at is their superpower is they can get you to do what they want you to do. That's how you get elected president. That's their core thing. But at base, they're human beings. And you realize like they hate when someone goes and makes a joke about them. And they hate when 
when they get a bad number and they hate when, you know, even like all of us, even when your enemy says something bad about you, you still feel upset. Yeah. Right? Like, or at least I do. I've revealed myself. But like, to me, once you realize the humanity behind it, the only thing it changes about me is the politicians who I used to hate, and there are some I still hate, but like, you do realize like... Your, your your venom level has to go down because you realize at the end of the day they're all sitting on the same crap or reading the same old Garfield, you know, at the end of the day. Yeah, and the thing is when people say shitty things about you and then you get up you, you you forget that people get upset, but isn't that better? Like do you want someone who's a complete sociopath and totally like someone who has who's not affected by anything other people say? Right. He's a dangerous right. person. Don't give him the button, right? Like don't <laughs> do just that. do whatever they want of and course. they feel no like, consequences. Right, right, right. I mean that's the and, and the thing is is you that's what we, the best part of every president is they're us, right? And every human being and every character I've realized that I've written and it's why my characters have changed over the years is every one of us is awful and amazing and brave and cowardly and incredible and and terrible. And we are sometimes all in the same day, every one of us. And and to me, once you realize that and figure it out, like your venom of like he's the worst person ever or I bet even like Listen, when you go on, you know, that big show, whether it's, you know, the Oscars or anything else, and you see, and you feel whatever venom you feel, or when I get a review that comes out in USA Today saying something bad about me, you can't hate anyone in the same level that you used to hate when you were 21 years old, <laughs> right? Because you just know that how it feels to you. Sure. Like, and someone said to me, you know, every bad review feels like your mother said it, and I still believe that, but on some level— you know, you get better at just one, let it roll off, but two, you get you you become a little less vengeful in your heart. I really do. Yeah, and and but but I do think that uh, except for the ones who said it, and those people will pay. Oh, you know, oh, you know what? At Bobby on uh, at Jumbo's, he used to have a, a death wall, and in Jumbo's in the back, if you wronged him or or owed him money, <laughs> he would put you on the death wall. And as far as I was concerned, that was the best kind of thing, and and the best was is that people actually on the death wall started dying. Oh, shit. And that was awesome. Like, that's when you're like, the death wall works. Like, don't go near <laughs> the Or Bobby death was wall. killing people. Or he was a sociopath. And, 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 and then it was not actually and chicken you were eating. chicken crumbs uh, always at the... <laughs> I wonder why this scene. chicken has such a specific flavor to right. it. Um, it tastes but, like an but eyes I, on you shirt. Know, but I wonder, just because I feel like the expectations of a president are impossible. I mean, it's like people want someone... Who can make decisions and sort of be inhuman, but also if they don't seem human, the people are like, ah, oh, he's not a real. Like, there's no. It is you can't win. No there's, president there, wins. There, That's there, exactly there, it. There's no way to win, and uh, and, and I think famous people in general, in a lot of cases, there's no way to win because people just they'll see kind of a two-dimensional representation and take whatever smattering of facts they can cobble together to build an image of oh that guy, yeah, I like that guy, or fuck that guy, I don't like the guy. It's sort of like. Sort of like hosting the Oscars, I think, where it's like, well, what's the upside? It's a thankless job. Most people are going to shit on you. That's right. And what's the what's the point of what's the point of doing it? Why bring? I would. I think I would just never want to be president because I'd feel like, oh, it's fucking gross. Well, that's too why much. the job's in. That's the thing is, it's a suck Aren't, job. Do you have to be a little crazy it's to a, be president? I'm saying, it's a. You have to at some point. First of all, I think anyone that works for a president to be elected has parenting issues. Like I really feel like they have a hole in their life. That needs to be filled by a dad that's missing, and that's why they 
go around this person to like fill, you know, like when someone dies that you love with your whole heart, you have a hole in you. And the only way you must fill that hole. And to me, the only way you fill that hole is you got to transform in some way and you got to fill it with a person or something. Some people do with the wrong things, whether it's drugs or alcohol. And some people try and find actually good ways to fill that hole. And I think that people who surround presidents have these holes and presidents themselves at some point in time have to alone sit and say, you know what? I think I can run the whole world. Right. And that takes a level of amazing, you know, you can call it narcissism, you can call it like ego, you can call it whatever you want, but you got to have that thought. And that is just rough. And and I think one of the things that, that Bush sent to me is he once sent me, uh, Ronald Reagan, when he left office, put a note in the Oval Office desk and left a note for, for President Bush that said, don't let the turkeys get you down. That's what he left from. And then, and then Bush left a note for Bill Clinton, and Bill Clinton left one for W, and W left one for Obama. It's the greatest hidden tradition of the modern presidency. There's always a note when you get to the office. Is, the it's always, is it always different? And it's always different. And, and I asked uh, President Bush about the note, and, and I opened up my email, and he actually it said, the president wants you to have this, and he actually sent me the note he left for Bill Clinton. <gasps> And no one had ever seen it. His biographers hadn't seen it. They were like, why'd you give it to the schmuck who writes fiction? You know, like, I'm like, I don't even know why he gave it to me. But when you read the note, and it's actually a super generous note. Like, it's actually like, we're rooting for you and the country's rooting for you. But the thing that's fascinating about it is that the only thing he mentions twice in the note is basically like the press is going to come after you. And it's very clear that here you are, the most powerful person on the planet, and it still stings to him. That you're no way prepared for the beating you're about to take for the next four years to eight years. And even if you think about what Reagan said, don't let the turkeys get you down. He's still saying, like, you're going to take a beat. You think you're taking a beating? You have no idea what is coming. It's, it's almost like it's almost like <laughs> it's almost like a regeneration. Like, you know, <laughs> this is what you got to know. Right. But and, and, and it's got to be way worse. I mean, I'm not even going to say it's got to be. It is way worse because as an entertainer, it's not like my decisions affect people people living or dying sure. livelihood you know where funding is going it's just sort of like no no lives are relying no, on no any of us right no one every every day you have to you know there is a godlike thing where as a president you i mean and i think it's you know determining how much power the president really has well, I, think I think that's is, the humbling part of the, of that, the office i think they finally of, realize wait you have far less than you, you really think don't you do. i mean like you can sort of influence trends you can influence certain things you can be in you're you're kind of you're more of an influencer, a figurehead influencer, I think, than someone who's like, we're going to do this, and we're going to knock down right, these walls, and we're going to do... Right. You, you know, because you that. still have these giant other l- l- bodies of Especially government. Especially now. I mean, the, the fight that goes on. But yeah, you have to have a healthy ego. But it is... It, there is something of, you know, when you do throw your weight behind something, you know that a percentage of people are going to get fucked over by that. I mean, what a mind fuck that's got to be. Um, I mean, listen, you have people who are coming to you saying like... I lost my job because of you. Yeah. Right? You are the one reason my my kid can't pay for college or for health care or that's the reason my kid died. I, I mean, mean, people that, tell me people tell me that I ruined Walking Dead because of right, Talking Dead. Right, and I'm like, that, you can avoid that. That doesn't right, even affect right, you. Right. Imagine if you're the president. Right. That's and the you, thing. you cut funding on something and someone comes to you. Oh, and no, no, says no. Listen, you, I've been blamed for ruining comics and I've ruined, you know, history. And I, like, I get blamed for ruining everyone gets blamed for like you put yourself out there in this culture now. You're gonna ruin something for and something. I've ruined 
something. And the be- I think actually. You know we should embrace that, Brad. You know what? Be a ruiner. Ruiner. Ruiner, it, and that's good. Because if you're a ruiner, then at least you're stirring shit up, and then people are. Well, that, you know, the best advice anyone ever gave me about that is someone said to me, the worst thing you can say about someone who's a creator, whatever they create, whether it, you know, is, is someone just says, it's okay. It's better. To, well, it's, you know, again, the, the, it's this idea that I always go back to of like, you know, is it better to be polarizing than neutralizing, you know? No, I'm saying, and, and where do you come out? I am, well, I come more out on the polarizing side, but I also don't 100% believe that it's good to... Well, neutralizing is a, is a much more positive word than just being like, eh, in the middle. Yeah, I, I, mean, I mean neutralizing in the sense that there's not, there, there's, there's not really a reaction. It just right, right, of, that's like, what I mean. If that's neutralized, right, neutral. if it comes out and it just sits there, but like, I also I'd, don't, much rather, I, I'd much rather touch someone and make them feel something. But I, I, don't, I don't believe in bad behavior attention, though. So I don't think it's good. I, I'm not someone who thinks like, you know... Like you look at something, someone like Don Lemon, and you're like, "Well, I, it feels like he's just trying to piss people off to get attention." And and to me, yes, it's he's polarizing, but I don't feel like that's a good thing. You right. Know? Well, it, wait, right. Uh, listen, lighting people on fire for the sake of lighting people on fire is a different. But I'm talking about just truly, you're creating your work and you put it out there, and you know you're doing your best. That's a that's a different thing, right? Yeah. Like someone who's just trying to whatever it is, whether you think they're getting attention or whether they think they just you know. Because then you just become a troll. That's that's a, of course that's a we we don't you know that's not the that's not the polarizing you need to be. But when you're just truly creating something from your heart and saying this is my best story and I'm going to put it out there, or this is my best video game, or this is the or this is the thing I love about Walking Dead or Breaking Bad or whatever it is, like. I'd much rather it be out there and striking someone to say like I hate that than having it just go out there with a thud. Yeah, I would. Yeah. I mean, the thud. Well, right, fine. and you that's know. the thing is like if you just give it the meh, I'm like, Did you read that Brad Meltzer? No, nah, it was okay. Fine. Right, I mean, that's the worst review of all. Like, and I and I get re- you know, listen, we all get reviews where of the thousands that come in, there's that one that you're like, that one's right. I can live with that one. That one is actually right. That's what I'm really not great at, and I'm gonna learn from that one. And I can I can let the others roll off. I know when when someone says something bad, I'm like, you know, that's petty, that's stupid, that's a personal attack. I can let those all roll off. But when you see that one that's right, that's the one that really one it, it gets me, but not in a bad way. To me, that's the one you should embrace and learn from. How do you know which one's right? You just you know what you it's, it's, it? it's a Supreme Court definition of pornography. It's you know when you see it, mm-hmm. right? You just know that you, we all know, although we don't acknowledge it. But you know what your greatest weakness is. You don't. You couldn't say it right now. But if someone said it to you, whatever it might be, you'd be like, "That's me. I do that." And when you hear that, you have to let your ego down and embrace that negative. What's your thing. greatest weakness? Um, I, listen, I think for me, greatest weakness is again, it's hard. If you said it, I'd be like, "Yes, I'm guilty of that." But I, listen, I think people we'll do know. Tell, I'll tell you what I think. Yeah, yeah, no, I'll give you my. Uh. Um, my real one as a creator, we're talking about, or as a, or as a person. What are we on? Oh, I don't know. Um, I mean, I think, I think you know. Let, let's just let so you don't have to get super personal. Yeah, yeah. I, Why I, don't you say as a creator what you think? No, so from from mine, I know that I plot first, and then I have to work hard at the character. So I know when someone says, "You know what." Um, as you know, he's, he's a great plotter, but you know the character work in this scene is you know is totally whatever. I'm like, I gotta look at that. I gotta attack that. That's what I need to work harder at. In comics, actually, I do much better because I know those characters better. But I acknowledge, wait a minute, I need to I need to embrace that. And it's why in the last three books I started writing a series character because I was like, and now we got the reviews on this book have been the best reviews we've ever gotten because I've spent fifteen hundred pages with the same character, and I took that from people being like. The character is X-dimensional, and it needs to be fully dimensional. And I was like, I embrace that, and I was like, I'm going to work at that. So I know that that's definitely that's not what comes naturally to me. And yeah. i got to work harder at that. Yeah. I think mine, which actually I think also bleeds into personal life, is that I 
completely honestly, I think I'm I I get too desperate to be liked. And I think it goes back to being in grade school, yeah. being into the stuff I was into, never being accepted by other kids, not knowing how to communicate with them, not knowing how to have conversations fit in with them, talk to them. Yeah, no, no, I'm you a know, pleaser. I'm, listen, we're all pleasers. Every creator is a pleaser. It's not just pleasing, but I think, you know, it's – and, I, you know, and I've gotten a lot better about it in the last few years. As, as you get older, you start right, to – you, have to you get a little go. more comfortable, you sure. know. But I know, you know, um, there have been a lot of times where I was like, oh, I think I just – you know, like that was me trying to be liked more than me. I, I get that. I, I will tell you this. If someone said to me, I thought this was amazing, um, that whatever – age you're at when you really kind of I don't want to say become famous but when you when your work kind of hits the hits the world that you're forever trapped at that emotional age forever hmm that's interesting so when do you think that was for you I mean I know it was it was 27 that's my first book came out I know that I'm trapped like for a while I will say I was trapped at that for a long time and then I had kids and to me, once I had kids, now I could write adults. I could never write an adult because I wasn't one. I couldn't figure it out. I was like, and I know I'm still not. I know I, you know, I because again, we spent an hour just now talking about Donkey Kong, right, Junior, and like I could. You're wearing an eight bit spy versus spy shirt, right? Right. I mean, clearly, right? I mean, so I know that's okay. I was gonna say, says the man wearing squirrels, squirrels, squirrels. Yeah, right? my my shirt is a neon. It's a neon squirrel, and it says squirrel, squirrel, squirrels. On right. It, yeah. So yes, thank you, Mr. Kettle. And so, but I will say that. In that, to me, I'm okay with that as long as you recognize that weakness. But I do think that that's why that's still your issue, because you basically found your voice in that thing that that hurt you, mm-hmm. and that's where you're tr- you're going to be trapped. And you have to you have to transform. You have to you you will either transcend or you'll be stuck. And you know that to me is the journey you're on. Like that's the journey. No, and and honestly, it has gotten better in the last few years, and I see it in my stand up, and I see it because, and I see it. The podcast really help me because when you talk this much to people, you work it out. You have to. It's, you you can't you can't you can't be fake that whole time. Well, and that's and, a thing. You know, like you have to. At a certain point, you have to start opening up and talking about yourself. And when you do that, you know, there's a risk that people are going to go, "Oh, I don't really like who you are." And then you go, "Yeah, well, that, then I don't it's know. over." Sorry. Right, right. I, I mean, don't know what to say. Well, that's the thing is, you know, for me, if you look at my first interviews I ever did. All I would do, I was like a, a, a first-year baseball player given the rookie quotes, like, I'm just happy to be here. I'm taking it one <laughs> game at a time. I, you know, it's just everything was good. That's all I would say in my interviews. Everything was good. And then I finally was, I don't know what it was. I, I mean, I, I, I think it was my mom dying. Like, when my mom died, I was like, you know what? I'm going to go out there and just tell everyone I'm completely and utterly devastated by the loss of my mother. And when I did that, I realized, oh, I can actually share with my audience the negative thing that's going on in my life. And it's it's profoundly better for me than just going out and saying the bullshit, which everything's grand. Because well, it's honest, yeah. It's I, honest. I, I, and I, I think was... that honesty is very. And I'm sure I know on this. Listen, I know you. Even though we, you know, we just kind of like email back and forth and whatever. I know you a long time, right? Like when we started, I guarantee you, even from the start to now, you are so much more honest about how even you answered that last question. If I asked you ten years ago when I first met you, or however many years ago, five years ago and said, tell me your weakness, you would have given me some like safe answer to make sure you weren't being judged, right? And then I, think, we- I think my dad dying changed a lot of that too because I, I realized like, oh, well, outside of something, you know, outside of getting cancer. What's my, the worst, my, right? That, like I just went through the worst thing you can survive without having a child, something happen to a child, right. which is my father, who I was very close to, just dropped dead. And 
wow, I guess nothing like all this other stuff doesn't really fucking matter, you know? Right, well, so, life like, is perfect. I mean, and yeah. listen, not that all the creators out there don't, you know, let your parents die is like the way to step forward, but <laughs> no, I do no. think that's not what we're promoting here, but I will say, well, maybe... <laughs> did help Bruce Wayne. Right, I was, was going to say, say, I was just going to say, it did help, but yeah. yeah. But... Kellel had some father issues. And so, but I but I remember when I when I did my, my very first book, You Get Your Reviews, I got my second book, I got my reviews. When the third book comes out, people start reviewing, like, hey, let's look at the whole, at the work. And the stranger comes through the internet... Websites are basically at that point first started, and it says, "Dear Brad, I've read three of your books now. What are your issues with your father?" Oh, and I'm like, and none of the books I had written were about dads. Like a dad appeared on ten pages in this book, twenty pages here, and I was like, "Oh, I'm clearly putting shit out there that I don't even know I'm putting out your there." Your brain's just expressing right. it, and it's expressing in a way in work that I didn't even realize. And once that happened, I was like, of course, very conscious of it. But in in fact, in the newest book. I never pull the theme until I get to the end. Then I figure out what has been really bothering me for the two years I've been writing this novel, and I can and I'm like, oh, it's not this. I was worried about this the whole time. And then when I started this book, I was like, I'm going to write about something to get me over the death of both my parents. This is the first book I'm writing where start to finish, both my parents are gone, and this is going to be the book that helps me get over them because it's been a while. Like it's time to get over it, man. Like it, you got to move on. You got to grow up. You got to do your thing. And I realized as I was writing the book. I never want to get over the death of my parents. Like, my parents love me, and they deserve to be remembered. Right. And you have to do that. And when I was writing the last page of the book, listen, like any other creator, I sit there myself. I, you know, I may call friends and make my little, you know, writer's room over the telephone and saying, hey, what do you think of this? And what do you think of this? Um, But at the end of the day, I'm the one sitting there. With this book, I was sitting there for the whole day, and I couldn't crack the last sentence of the book. I was just like, I, I just don't got it. It's just not coming. I don't know what it is. And the, and the main character in The President's Shadow is is basically looking for his dead father and trying to figure out his relationship with his father. So, I, I mean, it's not like, I'm not Sherlock Holmes here to figure out, okay, this is clearly important to me. But I, I call my wife into the office. I'm like, do me a favor, sit here with me a little bit and just help me brainstorm, which never happens. I never do. And I throw out ideas, and she's like, no, she throws out ideas. I'm like, no, and then finally blurts out, the final sentence that's in the book. And all of a sudden, my eyes well up with tears. And I'm not one of those new agey people who feels like, you know, there's glitter cannons everywhere and magic happens. But like, sometimes art is magic. It just is. And it was in that moment, I'm like, oh, this is not my main character's journey. This is my journey. This is exactly what I needed about my parents. This is this is where I've been for the past, you know, seven years since my mom died, four years since my dad died. This is what I needed to learn and thank you, imaginary friend Beecher, my main character, for giving that to me. And like, and it was only because I was willing to be as honest and raw and like, this is going to hurt me, and put it out there. And and that's how you get the last sentence of the book. Wow. And 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 I was one of those ones where I, my wife knew she she saw me like tear up, and she was like, "You needed that one." And I'm like, "I needed this one." Thank you, Beecher. And it was just one of those crazy moments. But again, 10 years ago, I would have never been that honest with a reader. Never. Well, because the other part is that it's it's more – I think it's more interesting to read something that you know is meaningful to the person who wrote it and not um, you know, what I was talking about before. Like, you're going to like this, right? You know, Because in a way – you're not going into other people's houses and going, hey, do you want to see this thing I got? You're inviting them in and going, this is my experience. That's right. You enjoy it or you don't enjoy it. It it, it almost is irrelevant. Like whether or not you like the book is 
almost irrelevant to me. This is what it is. And, well, and but that takes a while to get there. It takes a while right? to get like there. The first, you know what people always say, I like this first book best, like wherever you're reading, people always say, oh, I like that first book best. And why, my theory on it is, is because in that first book, when you read an author for the first time in their first novel, they don't have an audience yet. They don't know they're going to be judged, and so they're purely honest. When nobody's there and they don't know what it feels like to take a bad review or to someone say they don't like something, they'll let everything hang out because they don't realize they're letting everything hang out. And then when they write their second book and they've gotten the bad review, then they want to be liked. You know, I was worried that – because I'll probably just – I'll probably shoot a special, a Sam special later in the year or early next year, and, and a lot of stuff in the special is uh, – we'll be done. Um, the – uh, a lot of stuff in the in the new set is very personal. It's very personal. There's stuff about the death of my father in there. Sure. I promise it's funny. Uh, there's stuff about death Sounds of my father. Sounds hysterical. Yeah. There's stuff about dealing with anxiety. There's stuff. About, and at first, I got worried. Like, oh man, you know, if I do this, and then if people hate it, am I going to feel personally attacked? Because it really is very much who I am, and things that are you know like a part of sure. really huge. Yeah, yeah, no. And, you know, even in just talking to you and just the way that I've been writing lately, I kind of realized, like, oh, you know, I, I feel somewhat impervious to it because I feel like, well, I, these are my experiences. That's it. I, right. I don't know. You, that's right. This You're is, not making it up, these right? These are my human ex- It's not like in my last special, which I already kind of hate my last special when I look back at it. I'm like, ugh, because, you know, it was somewhat about me, but also going into the audience's yard to try to go, look how funny this is. And now I'm sort of like, well... This is me, and these are the experiences. And I, I don't know if you're not if you don't like that. Then obviously we weren't meant to be friends. And I, you know, good good luck to you. Like, but I, I also know. I promise you, like you, I can give you a good joke that will make everyone laugh in a cheap way, but that's not remembered and that's not lasting. Right, right. That is that is a short term high. But to give someone something an, an honest level of yourself like to someone of, else, yeah. right? You give them that little piece of your soul and. You're connected forever. Like people connect. I, I had a woman. Here's the. Here's the. I forgot about this. So this is about two weeks ago. I'm opening up. You know, the delivery of all the mail comes, and a woman sends me through our PO box. Um, Dear Brad, here's a. My mother used to love Marshalls. When we we had no money, we used to go. <laughs> we used to buy layaway at Marshalls. My mom's favorite. When I when I hit the bestsellers for the very first time, we got the number one spot. I called my mother, and I was and she starts crying, and I'm crying because she's crying. And I said, where are you? And she's like, I'm at Marshall's. And I'm like, of course you're at Marshall's buying irregular socks, like for a deal. You know, like that's my mom. And and my readers know that love of my mom with Marshall's. And this stranger, I put it out there when my mom had passed. And and this stranger sent me a $10 gift certificate to Marshall's that says, I was just thinking of you. And this is in honor of your mother. And it's a Marshall's gift card. And I'm like... That's unbelievable to me. Like, that's art and magic. And when you put your, yourself out there like that, I'm telling you, when you do that stuff with your dad, there's you are not going to believe that something's going to come back in the universe, and you don't know what it's going to be, but it's coming back. And when it comes back, like, right after my dad died, my dad was struck by lightning. And then his father was also struck by lightning. How the fuck is that right. possible? I'm like, do not come in the rain with me at any level on any day. Like, I, and it's impossible. So I knew my grandfather was struck by lightning because it was in his army discharge papers. But I always thought my dad's story was a little bit of bullshit. I'm like, there's no friggin' way you were also struck by lightning like your father. That can't possibly happen. My dad could kind of bullshit a little bit. So I'm like, in his eulogy, I say, I don't know if this is true, but for the sake of the argument, I'm going to believe it's true because that's how he said it. And he always told it the same. He never exaggerated. It never changed. A couple of weeks after my dad dies, I get an email and it says, Dear Brad, 
you don't know me, but I read the eulogy you put on your website and on Facebook or wherever it was about your dad, and I want you to know you didn't know if your dad's story about being struck by lightning was true. I know it was because I was there the day he was struck. You want to hear the story. <laughs> oh, shit. And in that moment, this stranger becomes the most important person in the universe because he has new information about my dead father. Yes. And now in that moment when he shares it with me, he tells me the whole story, literally how my dad grabbed the at, at camp and it hit the, the metal bolt of the door, How it might, and he tells it the exact way my father told it, exactly. And he says, in that moment, my dad was alive again. Because I had new information. He was, I had a new story about my father. And you already thought father. the book is closed. Right. And I think, it, so I'm, the point of it being, when you put yourself out there in the universe, something comes back in a way that you'll never predict, you know, whenever. Next time we talk, you're going to tell me what the crazy ass thing was, but you won't believe what well, comes back the to you. Stuff always comes back to you. And you have to make the decision of what seeds do you want to plant to get that back. And if you plant shitty seeds, that's what's going to come back. If you open yourself up, you're going to get that back. Oh, You're going to... I got the best ending story for okay. us. Ready for this? Yeah. Exactly what you said. Here we go. So 9-11 happens. I get an email from a guy in a submarine, a sailor. And he says to me, um, I'm on this submarine. I can't tell you where I am. Undisclosed military location. We don't have many books, but we have your book, The First Council, on it. I just want to thank you, Brad, because it's brought me peace at this moment in time. I'm like, that's the greatest thank you I've ever heard. So I call my publisher. I say, can I get 10,000 books donated to the USO? She says, yeah. I'm like, that was easy. I'm like, I call another publisher. Can you get 10,000 books? We get 40,000 books donated to the USO. Now, flash forward 10 years. A couple of years ago, the USO asked, they asked six authors every year to go over and entertain the troops in the Middle East. So I go to Kuwait, and we go all across uh, the Middle East entertaining the troops. And the first stop I make, a guy stands up and says, I want to thank you, Brad, for all those books you donated all those years ago. And I'm like, wait, how do you even know that? No one knows that story. And he said... I used to see stacks of your books saying courtesy of the USO, so I knew you had to have donated them. I'm like, wait, you're screwing it all up. I'm here to say thank you to you as a soldier. You're not supposed to be thanking me. So now I come home, and I'm so taken by this guy's thank you. I'm like, I got to find the original guy on the submarine. I'm going to track him down. So I track the guy down. I say, I don't know if you remember me. My name is Brad Meltzer, and 10 years ago, you wrote me an email from a submarine. And I just want to tell you what you set in motion, because you just said set it in things in motion. And I'm like, and I figure he's going to tell me he's inspired and, you know, it was so great. And he's dead silent. And I'm like, are you okay? Because you could tell when something's bad on the other line. And he says, no. And I say, what's wrong? And he says, a couple days ago, my mother died from breast cancer. And what he doesn't know is my mother died from breast cancer. And I say, I'm here to deliver a message to you. And again, not in a new age way, but I said, when my mom died, everyone gave me, I'm sure like with your dad, like bad, useless advice, like, you know. Take it, you know, in stride, or it's right. meant to be, or crap like that. And I said, but one person gave me advice that I thought was really helpful at the time. And the advice was, our mothers never leave us, ever. And I think you need to hear that. And he starts crying. And because he's crying, of course, I'm welling up. And again, it's not like I think there's glitter cannons, but like sometimes we think we're alone in this world, and sometimes you realize you're profoundly connected. And I promise you, when you put whatever you're putting out in the universe about your family— you're going to be profoundly repaid. What an insanely unpredictable bow on the right. end of that, that that guy wrote an email and 10, 10 years later. 10 years. You were able to, and you may have, you may have helped, like he may have saved himself by reaching out to you to then be oh, in the oh, right place the at the right and time. And here's the full button, is I tell that story at a book signing 
And I say to everyone, listen, when you're out there, you got to go say thank you to someone. Like, think of that first teacher who took a chance on you. Think of that first person who gave you your first job. You need to go thank them. And a guy in the front row goes, then I need to thank you, Brad. And it's the guy from the submarine surprised me at the book event. <laughs> and literally, I'm like, I can hear the audience gasp, and I feel it against my chest. But literally, that's what he came in. It was like, it was the most unbelievable payback. So do whatever you're doing with your dad and your stuff, and don't hold back on it. it you're going to get it. Brad, I, it's so wonderful to see you again after all these years. And I'm so excited for you and happy and proud that you've done all these wonderful things. Congratulations on your grifter son. Yes, uh, exactly. And, it was going to be we're going to be working both of us for him one day. And your family, and also uh, I am Lucille Ball, and President Shadow, and Decoded, and just everything that you're doing. Listen, advice to you. I love when good people, good things happen to them. Love seeing everything that's happened. It's been fantastic. Thank Vice you person. so much, man. Love you. Now get out of my studio. That's right. Sorry. My studio. This weird room. Right, this room. It's better than the room we were in last time. I just said that. Well, yeah, because it's fucking uh, one of the Kardashians not going to burst in because we're not at the E-Channel. And say hi to your mom. I'm going to, you know what, my father What's that supposed to mean? Yes, no. Say Say hi hi to your mom. mom. Wink. Wink. Uh, I will. Uh, Enjoy your burrito, everyone. Continue to enjoy it. Make good choices. Put good things into the world. You know, maybe don't do it for selfish reasons, but if you put whatever you put in the world, will come back to you. Plant your burritos. <laughs> Gather ye burritos while ye may. I'm just going to start putting a lot of, I'm going to start forcing that into their advice. Carpe burrito. I'm just going to make a lot of really bad, <laughs> hacky, <laughs> stupid. Because <laughs> I don't give a fuck if you like me anymore. We still recording? Yep. I don't care. I don't even care if we're recording. I, don't even I care. was going to say that even if you weren't recording. I'm glad you said that because I don't care. I'm glad that you care a little bit. A lot of it. I don't care. Now leaving nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. In the climate-ravaged year of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven, a geoengineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she is willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Reyes Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.